start a new uh, series of messages this morning in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, turn with me there. We'll be in Matthew chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find one. And about two-thirds of the way through, you'll find the book of Matthew in Matthew chapter 1. One of the biggest sales flying around last week during Cyber Monday was by a company called Ancestry. For a mere $49, this was half off, you could purchase the company's signature DNA kit. Here's what it says, its tagline. Give your loved ones Ancestry DNA, the most detailed DNA test for a deeper family story. I'll leave that up to your discretion whether you want that or not. After the first gathering this morning, somebody... Somebody came in and told me that their family did this, and a relative found out that dad was not, in fact, dad. That stepdad was dad. So, um, I don't know if you want to spend that $49 or not. <laughs> Knowing uh, one's lineage is something of a hobby today. There are some people that this is what they do for fun, they chase down their family tree. But in the ancient world, this wasn't the hobby of a few, it was the absolute necessity of all. You see, genealogies were of utmost importance because it traced the legal line you belonged to. People looked in the ancient world not at life mainly through the lens of what they personally accomplished, but rather who they were connected to. Today, as we start a new sermon series for the month of December called The Savior, we're just going to look at the first three chapters of Matthew and consider what each section tells us about the Savior. Today, we come to what we're calling the Savior plan, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, here's the, the big news. This won't cost you 49 bucks because it's right there in your Bible. Matthew 1, 1 through 17. So if you'd like to put that $49 in the offering plate instead, please feel free. Teresa Bond is going to come read for us, and you should be giving her the utmost props at the end. There are some crazy names in here. So in the first service, um, somebody shouted out when I couldn't get a name, so feel free to shout out a name. Um, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. Abram was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Neshan, and Neshan the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, 
and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah and the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matham, and Matham the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the generations from Abram to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Aren't you glad you didn't get asked to read this week? <clears throat> Let's be honest, genealogies are the stuff of tremendous boredom. Reading a genealogy is like watching golf. It is only good for putting you to sleep. Or so we think. Friends, it turns out that this list of names matters. It's solid gold. It's spiritual dynamite. I hope you'll give me a few minutes this morning to try and prove it to you. Since this ancestry account contains people from literally the first book of the Old Testament all the way through to the last book of the Old Testament, there's obviously much more here than we could ever exhaust in one sermon. But I do this morning want to attempt to summarize for you the message that Matthew intended us to receive when he wrote out all of these names. And in particular, I want to try to emphasize the message Matthew has given us to three different groups of people. Every Sunday when we gather, we gather as a people who are at different points in our own physical journeys and different points in our spiritual journeys. I'd love this morning to speak in particular to three groups. Number one, to the bored Christians. Now by bored, I don't mean you are just bored with the list but you're bored with life. You're not finding your present walk with Christ to be producing any sense of adventure, joy, or life. I want to talk with you today. Second, I'd love to talk to the undecided in the room, those who would not consider yourselves Christians. And finally, I'd love to spend a few minutes visiting with those of us who feel defeated, to the defeated Christians. So bored, undecided, and defeated. 
can tell I was feeling optimistic this week. If you don't presently fit into one of those three categories, be encouraged. One day you will. And so you can listen this morning for a sense of direction to your future. But even more so, perhaps, if you don't fall into one of those three categories, you can listen for the sake of others. Because you know people, no doubt, who are bored. You know people who don't know Christ. You know people who are struggling with feeling defeated. Perhaps the Lord would have you to serve them based on what you hear today. First, if I could visit with the bored Christian. Friend, this genealogy is about something in particular. This genealogy teaches that Jesus is the promised King and the true Savior for all peoples. Brothers and sisters, if you're bored with your walk with Christ, the solution to your boredom is to simply listen to this list of names. I genuinely believe that. So let me read it again. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Can you feel your soul being uplifted? Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron. Hez the father of Ram. Are you, are you encouraged yet? Probably not. This doesn't seem like the remedy to boredom. It seems like it may in fact be yet another cause. But friend, remember where this list leads. It leads to Jesus. Christian, have you forgotten God became a man? God became a man. God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who is perfect in his perfection, the one who knows everything, the one who sees everything, the one whose power is limitless. This God stooped. He stooped in order to save you from your sin. God loved His creation, His broken, rebellious creation enough, not merely to assist from afar, but to enter in, to become one of us, to take on all our frailties, limitations, and pains. This is the Christian message. Christmas is our annual reminder that God gave up the glories of heaven for the groans of earth. And He did all this in order that you might be reconciled to God. Now since that's true, and it is, then why would we ever be bored as Christians? We are the recipients of the most glorious, gracious act ever committed. We have been united to the one who holds all things in the power of his hand. We are his, and he is ours. 
I know it's early, but you ought to be hooping and hollering. This is the glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're bored, it may be that you have stopped acting like your Savior. You see, the gospel message isn't only what Jesus has done for you. It is also what Jesus has done for you has set you on a trajectory of life in which you are to continue the same kind of life. In other words, Jesus' message is deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. You know, as I think back on my years as a Christian, the times in which I have been bored with God have been times in which I had turned inward. I was living for me, not for Him. Asking God to do more, 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 more instead of looking around and looking for those He would have me to be helping and encouraging and serving. It may be that your boredom with God is because You're not putting yourself in situations where you experientially know you need the power of God to enable you to serve the people that God's putting before you. The gospel pattern that exists in this genealogy is that Jesus left heaven, stooped to become like us in order that he might rescue us that we in turn would reenact that gospel pattern over and over and over to the glory of His name. Bored Christian, take on your Savior's ways. Now second, to the undecided. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ, we're so glad that you're here. One of the greatest privileges we have as A church is being a people among whom there are often those undecided about Jesus. Believe it or not, this text, these names, has an awful lot to say to you as someone who's considering Christ. You see, Christianity is different from many other religions. Christianity is not merely a system of ethics or a set of morals. There are many religions that are that. And they may teach us much about a right or ethical or upright way to live. And Christianity certainly includes those. But that's not what's down at the substance of it. Christianity is different. Christianity is history. Christianity is rooted in a person named Jesus and in claims about what he did in history. So by way of illustration, did... Caesar Augustus rule in Rome in the first century? Not rhetorical. Yes. How do you know? You weren't there. You know because you've studied history. Because someone told you. Because you considered the evidence you knew that that was a question of history. So let me ask you a similar question. 
did Jesus Christ experience birth in Bethlehem in the first century? That is no less a question of history. Did Jesus Christ die on a cross around the year 33 outside a hill in the city of Jerusalem? That's a question of history. And everything hangs on whether or not it's true. That's what makes Christianity different. You see, this isn't merely a set of ideas that if you think about them, they will transform your life whether or not it happened or not. It is rather, first and foremost, a claim of what has happened. And so, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, your questions are very important. I want to encourage you to not start with questions like this. What do I feel about Jesus? Or am I comfortable with the Bible? Or do I like Christianity? Or do I understand everything about it? Frankly, those are bad questions. No, really the only question you need to answer is, is it true? Did Jesus come? Did Jesus die? Did Jesus rise again? If the answers to those questions are yes, yes, and yes, and that is all you need to know to come into the kingdom of God. Now here's what this particular passage claims. Here's the history it purports. Jesus is the promised king, and Jesus is the true Savior of all people. That's what Matthew says. So we must ask this morning, is it true? Just like we ask of everything historical that we're taught. Friends, the Bible doesn't claim to present us myth, but fact. History, not fiction. Now, Matthew was a contemporary of Jesus. He knew him. He wasn't writing as somebody who lived hundreds of years later. He was writing as someone who walked the same roads that Jesus walked. He shared meals with him. They joked with each other. Maybe they threw dirt clods at one another for fun. They knew each other. And Matthew became persuaded that Jesus is in fact the Savior. Why? So now we're moving from mere history to interpreting history. Why was Matthew convinced? Well, it's all found for you right there in verse 1. It says, Matthew began his verse saying that Jesus is the son of David and Jesus is the son of Abraham. There you go. Case closed. That settles it. Not quite. You see, when we say today so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, we mean something different than what is meant here. I'm a junior, so uh, my father is named Charles Dennis Newkirk Sr. So if I say I'm the son of Charles Dennis Newkirk Sr., what I mean is something rather disturbing that I'd rather not get into the details of. He's my dad. 
he and my mom did something and I was the result. Now, in the biblical sense, I could also say Chuck is the son of Fraser Bernard Newkirk. I am glad I wasn't named after him. He is my grandfather. You see, biblical genealogies don't necessarily connect you to the immediately preceding generation. They can skip over them. But as long as the great-great-great-grandfather is in the same family line, then I am in fact a son of that great-great-great-grandfather. It means that I'm in the genealogy of. That's the way this genealogy works. Matthew, in other words, is tracing who Jesus is back to the two most important people in the Old Testament, Abraham and David. And in so doing, he shows us why he became convinced without any doubt that Jesus is the one he ought to entrust himself to. Hang with me a few more minutes if you're undecided about Christ. and Let me try to fill in the picture for you. All the way back in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So if we take Matthew and Jesus as contemporaries and push rewind back 2,000 years, then we get to the book of Genesis and the 12th chapter in that book to a man named Abram. It says this in Abram chapter <laughs> Genesis Chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, it's disturbing that many of you didn't notice and didn't laugh. Now, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all. The families of the earth shall be blessed. Friends, both the pages of the Bible and the days of our own experience teach us that we are people who need to be blessed by God. Because we, in fact, in many ways, are not. We fundamentally are not blessed by God. We are cursed by God. You see, both by nature and by nurture, we are people of sin. We are people who, in our DNA, are rebellious against God and then by our own free will choose again and again and again to rebel against Him. And so all people who have ever lived are sinners, except one. That one is who Matthew chapter 1 is about, Jesus. Jesus, the sinless one, came, lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death, rose again in victory, so that he would be the one through whom this promise to Abram would be fulfilled. So that he would be the one that would bring about the blessing of all of God's people. 
Many of you make fun of me for this, that I don't like the hashtag blessed that you put on your Instagram. I think it's cheesy and ridiculous. But in fact, it is true if you are in Christ. You are among many other things. Hashtag blessed. Because you are no longer cursed. You are not under the penalty and the power of sin, but the kindness and generosity of God. If you're here this morning and you're undecided about Jesus, my friend, you can move from cursed to blessed, having absolutely nothing to do with any change that you bring about. Only by the recognition that Jesus is the historical person Matthew claims him to be and entrusting yourself to him. That's what Matthew meant when he said Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now, how about the son of David? What does that mean? Well, if we fast forward from Genesis 12 to the book of 2 Samuel, David is now on the throne of Israel. He is king. And a promise was given to him in 2 Samuel verse 7. You'll see this on the screen. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. That's a nice way of saying when you're dead. I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body? And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The immediate fulfillment of that promise was that King David would have a son named Solomon, and Solomon would be king in Israel. And that happened. Again, if you're considering is the Bible true or not, you're not asking what I feel about it, but you're asking, is this accurate? Did this happen? And history shows that King Solomon was king in Israel. He reigned during the most prosperous time the nation ever knew. But that last little word, do you see it? Forever. That tells us that this couldn't have just meant Solomon. It had to have had a much fuller, deeper, long-lasting implication of fulfillment. That's where Jesus comes in. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of what was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. Meaning, he is king today. Not over a geographical boundary, but over every human heart who has submitted themselves to him. He rules and reigns as a good, sovereign, kind, providential king over the hearts of Christians. We see this even more clearly, perhaps, in the book of Isaiah. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of, his increase, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Friend, the, the two great streams of promise, of guarantee in the Old Testament, the promise given to Abraham and the promise given to David, they converge 
in the person of Christ, becoming a tremendous, raging, ever-flowing river of the grace of God. You see, undecided friend, if today you will but turn from your own feeble, ineffective attempts to be your own King and Savior, you will find one who is fully able, Jesus Christ. And He will ensure that all that was promised to Abram and David is to yours. Now finally, let's think together about the defeated Christian. Did you know it's possible that the very power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead can reside within you and yet you can feel as though you're unable to get out of bed? That everywhere you look, all that you see is dark. Where it feels as though the sun doesn't shine that your prayers hit the ceiling, that the Word has nothing good for you. Have you been there? Are you there today? Christian, this can happen. There are believers, no doubt, here this morning that feel stuck, discouraged, beaten down. Many times this comes as a result of Long, particularly difficult strains and stressors comes as a result of physical illness. It comes as a result of trying hard to be good Christians only to slip up and fail yet again. Believe it or not, the prescription the doctor has ordered to pull you out of your defeat is a genealogy. See, this history is a history of grace. Grace. This list of names is not the chosen few who got it right and therefore earned their way into the good graces and good plan of God. We have an eighth grader who is going to be in ninth grade. That might come as a shock to you, but for me, that was always a question. He's in one grade. Will he make it to another? So we're in the process of touring schools. We have five high schools on our list. Last Thursday, we went into one, and when we walked in, the first thing I saw was a set of silver bricks. You know what I'm going to say. The names on the bricks were who? They're all people who donated in order to bring about this great place. Friends, that's not what's in Matthew 1. These people didn't buy their way in. They're not renowned and wonderful because of something they did or did not do. They didn't make the cut and get in the familial line of Jesus because of their superior moral behavior. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details, but just for a small sampling, let me give you an appetizer. There are some incredibly terrible men in this list. 
So guys, let me talk to you for a second. Maybe you're like Abraham. Abraham, the first guy on the list. Abraham, after he received that great promise from God in Genesis 12, after he found God showering blessing upon him, when he was on this journey to go to the land that God had sent him, he came among a people he was afraid of. And in order to protect himself, he said, this woman is not my wife, she's my sister. You do with her whatever you like. That is disgusting. And yet, he not only did it once, he did it twice. And there he is in the list. Now how about let's go down a little further. Judah. Judah is the brother who decided, I so disdain, hate, am jealous about my youngest brother, Joseph, that he concocted the plan to sell him into slavery and have him transported all the way to Egypt and go home and tell dad he was killed. If you think your sibling feuds were bad, you got nothing on Judah. And Judah's in the list. How about David? David is at the center. He's at the apex of this list. And yet David was a lustful man. David was a man who at times was controlled by his passions. He committed adultery. He used his power for sexual gain. He ordered murder to cover up the pregnancy he caused. Most of the kings after David in this ancestry line were at times idol worshipers. Men who were placed in a position of power in order to protect people, but instead led them into the slums. And yet there they are in this list. Guys, we are no better. Now ladies, you don't get off the hook. Quit nudging the dude next to you. Let's consider the women in the list for a minute. Now, we'll refrain from Mary, the mother of Jesus, out of due respect to her. Let's consider the other four. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Not a one of these are what you would aspire your daughter to become. There is no exceptionally godly Jewish matriarch listed. All four of these are listed because, in fact, they don't belong here. Let's take the first one, Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite who dressed up like a prostitute in order to trick a relative into having sex with her. Rahab, the next one on the list, was also a Canaanite. But she didn't just dress up like a prostitute. She was one. Ruth The next one was a Moabitess. And as we know from our study, she did what at best would have been seen as risque. She went to a man in his sleep and propositioned herself. And then Bathsheba. 
Bathsheba is such a bad example, she doesn't even get her name listed. Look, it just references her as connected to a man. Now, Bathsheba took a bath. How funny is that? She took her bath in the nude, in public, in the middle of the day, where the king could see her. Now, if she only bore 1% of the responsibility for this, certainly David bears more. He's the guy in power. He has all the cards. And yet Bathsheba could have said no at whatever the cost was, and she didn't. Friends, this history, whether you're a man or a woman, you can understand, is a history of grace. Grace, not merit. Grace, not a lack of mistakes. God chose to work through these people in order to bring about the birth of His Savior. And discouraged Christian, look around. God chooses to use these people to continue to bring about His work of redemption and restoration. If you are discouraged, lift up your eyes. For God has always been about using outsiders, the downtrodden, the outcast, the weak, the poor, the broken, the unlovely, the sinner, the failures. This is what God does. If you have messed up yet again, there remains a grace for you that you cannot exhaust. Therefore, may the grace of God lift your head. May you rejoice afresh and anew in Him. If you feel like your prayers are not heard, like God doesn't care, like you have messed up too bad, just read this list of names. For your name is here too. And as you do so, remember, brothers and sisters, God takes His time. How long did it take the promise given to Abram to be fulfilled? In one sense, we would say 2,000 years. Be honest. Did you stand in front of the microwave this week irritated? I did. Did your blood boil as the traffic light did not change? to green in sufficient time. Friends, we are people in a rush all the time. But our God is never in a hurry. He is methodical. He does everything according to plan. He is never, ever, ever in a panic. He does not get anxiety. He doesn't get that clammy feeling. He is at peace always. And so as you consider your own disposition in a state of discouragement today, is it because you're expecting God to work on your timetable? Friend, He will do what's right in the perfect time. Your prayers are being heard. Your work will bear fruit. Your life will be changed. 
but God will do so not at the microwave, but in the crock pot. God takes his time. In the meantime, may the waiting that we must do cause the muscles of our faith to be strengthened, that we might bear more fruit and run further in this race of faith than we would ever have been otherwise. Brothers and sisters, in in closing, my prayer this morning is that whether you are discouraged or defeated or downtrodden or undecided, that God's Word would bear the fruit of changing our lives. It's December 2nd. What if this was your last December? What if you never see another December 1st? What if today is the last December 2nd you will ever see? How would you live this month? What would be different than last December? Friends, this genealogy leads us to the way. It shows us how to get out of boredom. It shows us how the Lord would lift us up from discouragement. It shows us the extent to which we need this King and the degree to which He went to show Himself in history to be this King. So whatever category you fall into, I want to encourage you to run this morning to Jesus, to cast yourself on this King. Because friends, it may be your last December. Let's pray. Father, it is, I'll bet, surprising to us that there would be anything in a list of names about who fathered who, who fathered who, who fathered who, that would make any difference at all to us. And yet, in every paragraph, in every verse, we find the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for the discouraged today to be lifted up. I pray for the undecided to become persuaded and to turn from sin to you now in prayer. Pray that the defeated will, in fact, realize that the one who conquers all things has made them more than conquerors. Father, use us this December to show and to share your love in a city that is in such desperate need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.